if you struggle to breathe in the mountains, there could be multiple causes. Maybe it's the thinner air. Maybe it's the curse placed on you by the Witch of the Mountains. Or maybe it's the unexplained creature closing its jaws around your throat. This week's episode of Darkness Prevails features scary mountain stories and witch encounters. Enjoy the show and go to darkstories.org to send me your real stories so I can narrate them. Also, check out eeriecast.com for more of our terrifying shows. Now, let's begin. The Witch of Donner Farm From Harsh Truth In the 1980s, when I was around seven or eight years old, my dad's dad died. He'd lost a long-fought battle against cancer. I hate to say it like this, but I remember my family feeling relieved. The stress and pain my grandfather suffered was finally over. Now, my grandfather had been a man who saved his money, but never came around to spending it. And as my grandmother had long since passed, my father received everything from his father's will. My family received over $60,000 in the will, and after some time planning and discussing with my mother, my dad decided to put it towards his dream home. He wanted to return to the country lifestyle he grew up in. He thought the fields and woods would be a better place to raise my older brother and I. Soon, my parents purchased a beautiful ranch-style home with 80 acres of land, much of which still had to be financed, but the inheritance did cover most of it. I remember when I first walked through the doorway of my childhood home. It smelled of well-kept wood, the scent of freshly cut grass wafting in from the open front door. My mother left it up to my brother and I to decide between ourselves which rooms were ours. This would be my first time having a room to myself. I was so excited that I didn't care much which room my brother picked. I wish I would have cared, though. I ended up with the room furthest from my parents' room. This room was sizable, with two windows overlooking the fields outside. It also had a big closet that I had no idea what to do with. A lot of space for a boy who kept his clothes in a dresser. It was on the very first day we were there when the strange occurrences began. Having told our parents which rooms we decided on, we started to unpack separately in our rooms. I was sitting in the back corner of the closet of my room, figuring out how to stack my collection of board games, the only things I could think of to place in there at the time. I'd left my closet door open, as well as my bedroom door, so that lights from the house and from outside would shine into the closet. The closet did have its own light source, one of those light bulbs with a pull string, but I had a lot of trouble reaching it, so I didn't want to bother with it. I recall having just set down my Monopoly box when the closet door slammed shut. Instantly, I shot up and turned around. Without any light from the outside, the closet was pitch black, save for the narrow crack under the door. Uneasy, I called out my brother's name, assuming he was joking with me. There was no reply. I ran toward the door using the crack of light at the bottom as my guide. Then I scoured the dark for the doorknob. Relief filled me when I found it, until I tried to turn it. 
It wouldn't budge. It didn't make sense. The closet door didn't have a lock on the inside or outside of it. Why wouldn't it turn? A scared child, I could only assume my older brother was on the other side holding the doorknob still. We liked to joke with each other as all brothers do, but he had never been one to prank me like this. He was as much scared of the dark as I was. Moments after realizing trying to open the door was futile, I turned back toward the center of the closet and reached my hand upward, looking for the string to the light, or rather feeling for it. It was difficult for me to reach, but I knew if I could just feel the tip, I could jump up and yank it down, and the darkness would disappear. The longer I stepped blindly through the dark, the faster my heart pounded. Being engulfed in darkness was a nightmare come true. Little did I know things would get worse. I did finally feel the small caplet at the end of the string. Before I could jump up and attempt to yank the cord down, I felt something that took my breath away. An icy cold hand. From behind me, it placed itself on my neck and slowly ran up my cheek. I jumped and screamed so loud some of the blood vessels in my face busted. I practically tackled the wall next to me to get around the thing that had touched me because it had come from the direction of the door. Quickly, I scuttled toward the door and began to pound against it, screaming for anyone that might hear me. Moments later, my dad pulled the door open from the other side. I nearly fell on my face. I crawled out and immediately looked back into the closet. The darkness now cowered away from the light that flowed back through the open door. The closet, except for my board game stack in the back, was empty. My dad picked me up and embraced me and looked at my face. Ah, uh, buddy, did you lock yourself in there? Jeez, look at your face. He wiped tears away from my red cheeks. As he carried me to his and my mom's room to comfort me, I couldn't bring myself to tell him that the door didn't have a lock. But I did manage to tell both of them what happened in there. But they blamed it on my intense fear of the dark. Specifically, my mom said being that scared can make you see or feel things that aren't there. She compared it to seeing figures or faces in the dark when what you're actually looking at is a coat rack or a chair. As much as I loved my parents, I did not agree with a word of what they said. The hand I'd felt so long ago there was vividly real, and I remember it clearly even now. That hand was not my own nor was it my imagination. Later on, when Dad went to my closet one night to grab one of my board games, I watched him do a double take when he opened the door. It was the first time he'd actually taken a look at it. My dad looked the doorknob over on both sides and raised an eyebrow. Hey, buddy, he said as he checked out the closet door. If you go in here, make sure you don't close the door or you might get stuck in there again. There's no lock, so it's probably just warped or something. I nodded and did my best to believe him. Over the next few months, small but weird and creepy things would happen, particularly in that part of the house towards my room. Dirty clothes I'd lay in the bedroom floor would often wind up inside the closet floor the next morning. 
When I began closing the closet door every night out of fear of the darned thing, it would always be open in the morning. One day when I was out playing after having cleaned my room, my mom called me back inside, absolutely furious. When I went back inside to my room where my mom was, she was fuming because of how trashed my room had become. She thought I hadn't cleaned it, but the state it was suddenly in was worse than I'd ever seen it before. Every drawer in my dresser had been pulled out and dumped out. My blanket and sheet from my bed had been pulled off and tossed over the closet door which was now open. And inside the closet were hundreds of board game pieces as someone had dumped each of the boxes out onto the floor. I was flabbergasted, but no matter what I said to my mom, she wasn't having it. She demanded I clean my room properly before I was allowed to come out of the room. Obviously, I was upset, but I did as she said. I cleaned as fast as I could, folded all my clothes again, remade my bed, then stood at the opening to my closet. I couldn't bring myself to walk in there alone, especially after something or someone had just ruined my room, and I know it wasn't me or my brother, because we'd been outside, and why would my parents mess up my room? Deep down, I knew... It was the thing in the closet. I stayed in that room two hours longer than I had to, unwilling to enter that closet to pick up the board game pieces. But when my stomach began to growl and the smell of homemade fried chicken filled the air, I forced myself up and into the closet. It took me a few tries, but I managed to jump up and catch the string to the light bulb. So at least I'd have some light if I did get stuck in there again. Quickly, I started to pick up the pieces on the floor. It was a pain matching them up with the right boxes, as about a dozen different games had been mixed up. Every few seconds, I glanced at the closet door, making sure it stayed open. I thought nothing would happen if that door was open. I thought nothing could happen if the light was on. I was wrong. I picked up the final piece eventually, a small white ball that I'm pretty sure belonged in the Hungry Hungry Hippos box. I threw it in, closed up the box, and turned around. I stopped. A woman stood in the doorway. Her feminine shape made me first think it was my mother, but she was taller than my mother. Her hair was a mess and went down to her ribs. She stood facing away from me, in a stained but light blue dress. She appeared to be looking out the windows of my bedroom. My voice failed me. I wanted to speak to her, but I had no idea what to say. I wanted to think it was some long-lost relative coming for a visit that I'd never met before, and I hadn't known was coming. Denial is a powerful thing. The woman breathed in and out so slowly that I didn't hear her first breath until long after I studied her. Her breath was extremely slow and troubled, as if she'd been a smoker for multiple lifetimes. Then she lifted a bony finger and pointed towards one of the windows. I swear I heard her speak then. I think she said, Such a nice day. 
Suddenly, in the blink of an eye, my vision was obstructed. I flinched away, first thinking that I'd suddenly gone blind, but as my hands felt up towards my face, I found greasy, messy hair covering my small form. Then, that slow, struggling breathing came from behind me. This woman was no longer in the doorway. She stood right behind me, with her hair draped over me. I screamed then, and I ran forward, where I last saw the open closet door. And Christ, this sounds crazy, but the few feet I ran to escape that closet, each inch of the way I floundered through that hair. Her breathing stayed in the same spot in the closet, but the hair seemed infinite, as if it no longer came from her head, and instead hung from the ceiling. Only when I burst out of the closet did the hair finally come to an end. I turned to shut the door and found once again the closet empty. These are a couple of my most terrifying experiences, with what I would eventually refer to as the Witch of Donner Farm. Donner was the name of one of the previous owners of the land. I wish I could say I figured out who she was, that we moved, that it all stopped, but we didn't move, and it never did stop. It would happen randomly and things might calm down for months at a time, but she was always there, seemingly preferring my side of the house. The experiences only stopped after I moved out at the age of 20. If you want to hear more of these experiences, let me know. I'm sure most of you won't believe me. I wish I could sleep a bit better at night. The Witches in the Texas Woods From Skip McGrip 3 I live in the downtown area of a major Texas city. To get away from the city and enjoy the outdoors and some alone time, I would make the hour and a half drive almost every weekend to a small cabin that my folks have in the woods. I've been hanging out at that cabin in those woods almost my entire life, so I felt pretty comfortable there. The area doesn't have many people living there and it's relatively safe. So one weekend, I took some of my friends out there to fish and spend some time away from the city. While fishing on the bank of the river that runs near my folks' cabin, we pulled up some chairs started a fire, drank a few beers, and watched the sun go down behind the trees. That's the good stuff right there. After sitting around for a few hours, I suggested we go hunting the next morning for breakfast. The guys weren't big fans of the idea of waking up early to crawl around in the woods looking for something to eat. They would have rather stayed up all night drinking and fishing, and wake up late the next day. Let's just go hunting now said one of them. Everyone else agreed and started getting rowdy. I stayed put in my chair and replied, No, no, it's too late. It's too dark. We wouldn't be able to see a thing out there, man. Plus, those dang witches. Everyone knew I made a good point, but then one of them said, Whoa, wait, what do you mean witches? What are witches anyway? Like, really? I laughed a bit because they all seemed so intrigued and all of a sudden so focused. So I began telling the story of the last time I went camping and hunting in the woods around my parents' cabin, 
It was just like any other camping hunting trip I'd gone out on. I'd packed a backpack with all the necessities, a 22 long rifle, and an M&P 45 that I always carry. I parked my truck at my folks and walked down the dirt road until it disappeared into the woods. I make a point to not overhunt in any one area, so I hiked in a direction I knew I'd never hunted in. After a few hours of hiking, I found a good clearing in the woods that would have allowed for a good amount of moonlight once it got dark. I don't use a tent when I camp alone, so setting up my camp was fairly easy. I got a fire going, and I hurried off to find some small game for dinner before it got too dark. After bagging a few squirrels and a rabbit, I started to head back to my campsite. The night had already started to settle in, so it was getting quite dark on me. I took a moment to light my lantern that was hanging off my backpack. I poured some lantern oil in it and lit it. A few hundred yards later, I heard movement in the distance. Obviously, while moving through the woods with a backpack with a rifle strapped to it, you make a lot of noise yourself. However, the noises that came from deeper in the trees have a distinct sound, like an echo or a reverberation. So when I heard movement coming from somewhere else other than myself, I froze, staying completely still and listening. There was nothing. My brain started reasoning as fast as it could and concluded that a branch might have fallen or a deer got spooked and hightailed it out of the area. That was good enough for me. So I continued on through the dark in the direction I knew my campsite was. Compasses don't lie, and I'd learned how to use them and rely on them by this point in my life. I heard it again, though. Noises coming from my right, north of where I was. And this time, I almost thought I heard a yell of some kind. Again, I froze, thinking, coyotes. I'm not too worried about coyotes, so I continued. The way back was starting to feel really long, though. But hiking through the woods during the day is very different than hiking through the woods at night. You usually hike slower, watching your steps more carefully, so it's not unusual that a hike the same distance could take longer at night than during the day. Before I go on, I feel like I should say that I was recently married at the time, probably less than a year at that point. Like I wrote before, I traveled a lot throughout my life, and homesickness was not something I was familiar with until I met my wife. I'll call her Juliet here. We met when we were both 18, and up until then, I had never missed my home or anyone really, whenever I was away. But once we started dating, I began to finally experience the feeling of being homesick whenever I was away for too long, and in some cases, not long at all. That Friday evening, I left for the woods. I got home from work and sat down with Juliet for dinner before leaving. It had only been a few hours since I last saw Juliet, and yet I missed her so badly in those woods. So much so that I think I almost felt pain. Having said that, I think it'll make what happened next a little more creepy. Anyway, I'd heard something. I froze and I stood still in the dark woods and turned to my right. I was deeply confused because I knew what I just heard. It was Juliet calling me. Although it sounded like she was a bit far, there was no doubt it was Juliet. What's she doing out here? 
There must be some emergency. I, I gotta find her. She's probably been calling my phone, and it's not even on. Something bad must have happened. I thought, as my mind raced, to rationalize and come up with a realistic conclusion. Chip! 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 She yelled through the trees in the distance. My name isn't Chip, but it's what Juliet calls me. And only Juliet. I basically jogged through the dark forest towards where I last heard her, stopping every now and then to listen for her again. Eventually, I had to stop because I had not heard Juliet yell for a while. I stood there quietly panicking for what must have been five minutes, but every second was torturous. I felt like I failed to find my wife, to help her. She came all the way out here to find me because she needed me and I couldn't even find my way to her. And then I heard her again. Chip! 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 Her voice quietly resonated through the tall trees, and she sounded like she was in pain. I began to walk as quietly as I could towards her, so I could hear her if she called out to me again, and she did. She sounded noticeably closer. I was relieved as I felt myself getting closer and closer to Juliet. Chip! 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 This time, I felt alarmed. I felt like I was about to be in danger, but I shook it off and continued toward my wife. Chip. 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 Again, I heard her calling me, but she didn't sound quite right. It was as if she was in pain, but also like it wasn't her at all. Just like two different people can say the same things in the same pitch and rhythm, but they can never sound exactly like each other. Like there was someone else pretending to be Juliet and mimicking her voice. But I had heard her so clearly just a few moments ago. I figured she was choking up trying not to cry, so I kept moving. Again and again I heard Juliet calling me as I walked closer and closer. Each time she called, though, her voice sounded less and less like her. By the time she sounded like she was only ten or so yards away, I was on high alert. It sounded nothing like her by then. Whoever it was calling me, she wanted me to believe she was Juliet, and by then I knew for sure it wasn't her. I approached carefully with my handgun drawn. This person wasn't moving one bit, but I could tell where she was. I walked closer, inch by inch, holding my lantern up in front of me trying to see who I was dealing with. Then, peeking from around a tree, I saw two eyes reflecting the flame from my lamp, I have to admit, at that moment, I was terrified. Juliet is shorter than I am, and I was eye to eye with whoever this was, and her eyes were too far apart to have been Juliet's. Hey, is everything alright? I asked, like an idiot. Jab, she said. I can give you anything you want. I knew right away what she really was. I knew her malicious intentions. Jesus, help me. I sat under my breath in a fearful whisper, gun still in my hand, safely aimed toward the ground with my finger off the trigger. As soon as those words left my mouth, she visibly flinched, as if she had smelled something disgusting. I could only tell by her silhouette and the reflections in her eyes, though. I stood still, 
realizing what I had just said while she backed away from me, back into darkness. Up until this point during my story, my buddy sat staring at me completely silent listening to me speak. Dude, why didn't you just shoot her? You had a gun, right? Said the youngest guy. I told him it would have been useless to shoot the witch. It wouldn't have killed her or even hurt her, probably. How? Why? He replied. I began to explain to them what witches really are. People who practice witchcraft and offer rituals to demons they conjure in return for something they want. My theory was that this witch in particular achieved immortality through the sacrifice of people and animals. I could tell they were thinking it over and trying to decide whether to believe me or not. And to those listening, I know y'all might think this is unbelievable. And if I hadn't seen it all before, I wouldn't believe it either. The truth is my parents were, and still are, very prominent figures in the church I grew up in. Being elders of the church community, they both performed exorcisms throughout my childhood. And no, I don't mean the stereotypical Hollywood Catholic priest with a little white thing on his neck under a black jacket holding up a wooden cross. They belonged to a Hispanic Protestant denomination that, in fact, thoroughly disagree with and oppose Catholicism. Being too young to stay home alone most of the time, I was often taken with my folks with them on house calls to pull demons out of people. It was a horrible experience every time. In Latin American cultures, it's not uncommon for people and their kids to visit witch doctors or healers when feeling sick or when they want their lives to move in a better direction, and sometimes when they want harm to come upon someone who has wronged them. Participating in these rituals is like an open invitation for demons and leaves people vulnerable to demonic activity. So there is always someone in need of help in our community. I watched and listened to everything my parents did during exorcisms and read every book my dad kept in his office about the subject. By the time I had this incident in the woods, I already knew what to do and what not to do very well. I resumed my story after explaining a bit more to my buddies. As I was saying, I stood in the dark forest with my lamp held up with my outstretched arm until I could no longer see or hear the witch backing away. My adrenaline took a while to fully dissipate. Then fear hit me hard. I tried walking back to my campsite steadily and quietly, but my nerves got the best of me and I ended up almost sprinting through the dark. I was pretty confident I could find my way back, but either way, I checked my compass frequently. Yet, after running and running in the correct direction, I never reached my campsite. I felt confused and doubted myself like never before. Maybe I really don't know anything about being in the woods, I wondered. How could I have gotten myself so lost? I turned around and walked until I saw a familiar pattern in the trees. Once I felt confident about where I was, I forced myself to walk back to where I ran into the witch. When I found the tree she was initially hiding behind, I stared at it for a good while, expecting her to peek around it again, but nothing, thankfully. I retraced my steps back to where I detoured off my path to follow Juliet's voice, and after hiking a bit longer, I found my campsite. I was exhausted, covered in sweat, scratched up, hungry, and humiliated by the woods. I considered packing everything up and starting on the long walk back to the cabin, but I had no energy. I ate and called it a night. 
I didn't sleep much even though I felt entirely drained. The woods were very loud that night, even by a summer night standard. The bugs and animals didn't stop me to take a breath for a second, and the owls were particularly aggressive as well. I could hear them screaming near and far all night. Every time I began to drift off into rest, I would get awakened to the owl's screams echoing in the forest. Or at least, that's what I assumed to be owls. I turned to look at the guys and asked them if they were still down to creep into the woods. They looked at each other and hesitantly said yes, nervously chuckling. Well, y'all go ahead. I'm not going in there right now, I said, laughing to myself. But it didn't do anything to you. You scared her away, one of them replied. Maybe, but only because I said Jesus, I said. Well, then just say it again if she comes back. He was noticeably irritated. It's not that simple, I replied. I think you really have to believe for that to work. And I can say I really did believe back then, but now I won't be calling on anyone to come help me. After I said that, I don't remember much about that night, other than all of us ending the night by watching Blood Diamond in the cabin. It's the only movie my folks have in there. I think it was already there when they bought the place. As for what I said about believing, I'm not 100% sure it's right. Most demons hate God and Jesus, and I'm not sure if they care if you believe in God or not. It's not that I don't believe in God anymore. However, the only reason I do believe is because I've seen the other side of things. That witch knew what I loved and what I missed, and that I would do anything for Juliet. I've seen and felt evil, but I've never felt God. The Magic Needle Treatment, called Susuk, from J. Ion. As a child, I often accompanied my father to his acupuncture sessions. Because my dad was receiving a specialized acupuncture treatment that required the use of gold-plated needles that were very expensive compared to the regular disposable needles, my dad had his used needles sanitized after every use and stored in a Tupperware container, then brought home to be kept until the next session. It was a regular sight for his container with the gold-plated needles to be placed on the kitchen counter, where my mom usually bakes. Even though I was a child, I knew not to mess with the needles, because it was dangerous, and I knew my father would get very angry if I lost his expensive tools for treatment. There was a time when my grandmother decided to stay for a month with my family. One of those days, she decided to go to the traditional Chinese medicine clinic, where my dad got his acupuncture treatment, to get a consultation and treatment for her weakening general health. As my grandmother and I waited for my father to get ready, I crawled onto the kitchen counter and took the container with the gold-plated needles in it, and I started shaking it like a tambourine out of boredom. My grandmother saw through the semi-transparent lid of the container and remarked at how fine those needles were. This is when she, being descended from a long line of powerful shamans in the superstitious, rural villages of Thailand, started telling me about susuk, or colloquially known as the magical needle treatment. According to her, very fine and small needles will be placed deep into the facial muscles and skull of a person who seeks beauty, fame, and fortune from a witch doctor. The needles are not inserted physically, but magically, as in the witch doctor has to perform a ritual to make spirits, 
typically evil ones, bound by black magic, to materialize these tiny needles deep within the face of the person, without puncturing the skin at all. Apparently, this susuk, or magical needle treatment, was very popular among aspiring artists and tycoon wannabes who want the easy and fast way to stardom and success. Me and my child brain couldn't comprehend the idea of having needles anywhere on the head or the concept of black magic. I remember asking her repeatedly, Isn't it painful? Why do they do it? Can't they feel it? She explained that women used it to make themselves irresistibly beautiful, and men would use it to make themselves rich and powerful. As a child, I couldn't wrap my head around the logic and logistics of doing such a procedure. I remember thinking that my grandmother was a nutter, because there was no way anyone could do something so awful to themselves and instantly become beautiful, wealthy, powerful, famous, or successful. It sounded a lot like those endings in fairy tales, where everyone lives happily ever after, immediately at the conclusion of the worst time of their lives. I didn't think much of the story that my grandmother told me until I stumbled across a movie based on this susuk many years later. A relative of mine bought several DVDs of supernatural horror films to watch during the long holidays, one of them being a movie based on the practice. The movie was actually titled Susuk. This piqued my interest because the memory of what my grandmother told me resurfaced. However, she'd been dead for several years at that point, so I couldn't ask her without the utilization of a Ouija board or a psychic. So I turned to good old Google to find out more. Turns out Susuk wasn't as straightforward and clean-cut as the brief story my grandmother told me. Other than the hefty fee and expensive offerings to be given to the witch doctor, the procedure itself was an unstable one, where if the witch doctor was not well-trained and incompetent, it could be botched so badly that the life of the person requesting the magical needle treatment will be taken by the very same spirits meant to endow that person with unnatural charm and riches. Even in the case of a successful Susuk application, the newly seductive or fortuitous person has to observe very strict rules to maintain the efficiency of the black magic. These rules include never putting anything pointy in the mouth, never crossing a body of water, do not prick or injure any part of the skin, avoid sacred places and sharp objects, including broken glass and ceramics, must not be out of home on certain days of the month, and never reveal the true names of people and places involved in the procedure. Those who request for plenty of enhancements, where they desire more than just beauty or wealth, must offer more to the witch doctor and the spirits maintaining the black magic, sometimes even blood sacrifices on a regular basis. Death for those with susuk is extremely painful and slow, especially for those who have been fatally wounded or gravely ill, because the spirits bound by black magic will not let the soul leave the body until they have been appeased and freed by the witch doctor. So those who do not remove their susuk on their deathbeds will be in very drawn-out agony, even literally skinned and disemboweled, yet still miraculously alive and enduring every moment in a lucid manner. I, for one, will never take part in any practice of black magic. From the stories my grandmother told me of her childhood filled with supernatural encounters, dark desires of humans, battles between good and evil, I know for a fact that some things in some places are not meant for mere mortals. This episode is sponsored by June's Journey. Do you believe in monsters? And given the chance, 
would you be brave enough to track one down on your own? In June's journey, people are the true monsters, and you can live the story yourself rather than sitting back and listening to one. June's Journey is a hidden object game with a thrilling murder mystery set in the Roaring Twenties. You play as June on the hunt for your sister's murderer. Discover clues through exciting hidden object scenes with beautiful and atmospheric illustrations and music. Victory brings you closer to new plot points and suspenseful answers. When not hunting for clues, you can customize your own luxurious estate island with gardens, buildings, and decor. Or chat and play with or against other players too, in the Detective Club, where you could even put your skills to the test in the Detective League. June's journey is both relaxing and fun to play. With my busy schedule, I find it's the perfect game to pick up and play whenever I've got a free moment. It doesn't demand too much time, and it's pretty satisfying solving puzzles quickly and unlocking new clues. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Coal Mine Road from Dean When I was young, my parents moved around a lot. I must have attended 10 different schools during my life. My dad was the kind of man who shouldn't have had kids. He wouldn't keep a steady job and forced my mother and later my aunt to work long hours to support our family, which included six kids. He was a schemer and always looking for an angle to work. My earliest memories were bar fights and my dad robbing my piggy bank while he was drunk in the middle of the night. My mom followed him like a god. To this day, I don't understand why. He was physically violent with her, and she stayed with him for over 20 years until all the kids had grown. I guess she stayed for us more than anything. The story actually begins when I was 10 years old. My dad outfitted an old school bus with bunks, and we traveled across the country from Utah to Indiana and finally to Kentucky, where the bus engine died. So the bus was our home for a long time, until Dad finally rented what could only be described as a shack on the side of a mountain. This was near Burksville, in what is known as the Cumberland Gap. Very mountainous with steep hills, with gravel roads carved into the mountains. The house we rented was from an old man named Howard, who owned a gas station and convenience store where two roads intersected. Howard was a good old man who took a liking to my dad. He used to give us the flat sodas from his gas station when we were waiting on the bus. For us, it was a very rare treat to drink anything more than water. There were six of us kids altogether. Marty, who was just a baby. Michael, who was in kindergarten. My sisters Jean and Carol Ann, who were in third. And my brother Jim, who was in the second grade. I was the oldest in fourth grade. We would walk down a steep gravel road that was about a quarter of a mile from the house each day to the bus stop. I remember the gravel road was overgrown and had old houses that were dilapidated on both sides. The town had been part of the company housing for a coal mine that closed up back in the 50s. Kudzu and vines covered houses, 
Old trucks and cars that were no more than rust piles lined the sides of the road, looking out of the brush as if they were trying to hide. Howard called it the coal mine road. The house we lived in was at the top of the hill from the gas station, then about a quarter mile down coal mine road on the right. It was the only house not grown over with kudzu and weeds. The road kept going to a clearing where Howard had an oil rig. I remember there were copperhead snakes, and we'd keep ourselves at the center of the road so no one would get snake bit. Sometimes they would come out onto the gravel and warm in the sun, especially early in the morning. We would throw gravel at them to keep them back. We were warned never to venture off the path because Howard had told us that there were hidden dangers all around. Old cellars that had caved in, uncovered wells, and of course, the snakes. Mom was very careful to keep us all near or in the house as much as she could. But being the oldest boy, I would be sent out to get coal from a coal pile. A potbelly stove was all we had for heat. It was a chance to goof off and look around, throwing old rocks at the windows of those old houses I could see through the woods. One day, Mama asked me to go out and bring in some coal. I was watching TV on a black and white TV set in the bedroom, and I didn't want to get up. So I acted like I didn't hear Mom ask. She finally came in the room fussing and said that if I didn't get the coal right now, it would be dark. So out I went. We had an old wheelbarrow that we used to bring the coal up to the house. Then we'd take a few large pieces in and put them beside the stove. For those of you who don't know, coal is very dirty, and it gets all over you. The old wheelbarrow had a steel wheel that needed grease and would squeal as you pushed it down the road and over to a pile of coal that Howard had brought out for us to keep warm. In a lot of ways, I think Howard worried about us in that old drafty house. This was sort of his way of helping. It was already dark when I shoveled the last of the coal into the wheelbarrow and turned toward the house. Then, I saw something. On the road past our home, there was a light. It was dim like an old lantern. Dad wasn't home, that I knew. He was working at a blue jean factory four hours away, and he wouldn't be home until Friday. The light bobbed as it came slowly up the road, like someone walking. There was nothing down that road now, no reason for anyone to be coming up from the old oil rig and coal mine, and if it was Howard, he would have taken his truck instead of walking. And yet here it was, a dim yellow light that seemed to keep a steady pace toward me. I gave the wheelbarrow a push. Then I stopped. If they didn't know I was here now, that would have told them. I dropped the handles of the wheelbarrow and made a run for the house, hoping I could beat the lantern carrier. As I ran the 100 yards or so to the house, the lantern grew closer, but kept its steady pace, not pausing. I could see it was a lamp, flickering with a very dirty, dusty glass cover. I could make out a single person in the light of the lamp as it swung at the end of the arm, walking ever closer to me and my home. I burst through the door of the house and yelled, Mama, there's someone out there on the road, behind the house. Mom came out of the kitchen 
and came to a halt just inside the living room. There was no doubt based on my face that I'd seen something. I wasn't overly afraid of the dark, and Mom knew that. I didn't spook easily, and she knew I was usually the one who got rid of the snakes and defended the younger kids from bullies. She said in a calm voice, Lock the door. I ran back to the front door and shut it quickly, not taking time to look for the lantern. I turned the old deadbolt lock and a homemade wooden lock we had made with a nail and a flat piece of wood. Mom came into the living room with a single 16-gauge shotgun. Her dad gave her that gun, and that may be the only reason we still had it, because she refused to let dad sell it. By this time, the other kids were coming into the room. She told them in a hushed voice to go to the bedroom and lock the door. It must have been the tone of her voice, because they did exactly that. I could hear Marty crying behind the door and my oldest sister hushing him. She walked around cutting off lights, the kitchen, the hall where the potbelly stove was, the living room. The house had those old string lights to a single bulb, so as each light went out, the house grew very dark. The only light was the light of the porch light and the light from under the bedroom door. Mama began to peek out the windows. First, she looked out the kitchen window. The back door was locked, I could see. She peeked out the small window and the door then, and then the living room windows, then the bathroom. Nothing. She turns to me and asks, Are you sure you saw someone? I answered quickly. Yes, they had a lantern and were walking up the road. From the mine? She was looking at me intently with a furrowed brow now, her voice raised like she was questioning the information. You better be telling me the truth, she responded flatly, rechecking each window. I was hurt and at the same time angered by her lack of belief. I then started checking the windows myself, but I didn't see anything either. Finally, Mom opens the front door and steps out on the porch. She goes to the edge and looks up and down the road. I peeked out from behind her and didn't see anything either. The moon was above the trees now, and you could see clearly there wasn't anyone on the road. I guess it would be easy enough to turn off the lantern and slip into the woods, but why? We didn't have any kind of flashlight, so we had to just strain our eyes and see what we could. Nothing moved. No noises came from the woods but we could hear the other kids bumping around in the bedroom. We went back inside and shut the door. She put the shotgun in the corner by the door and looked at me with surprising compassion after such a scare. Maybe we have enough coal for the night. She smiled at me. I really saw something, Mama. I once again insisted. Maybe it was Howard. We'll ask him in the morning. She walked back to the kitchen, leaving me standing by the door. The next morning, I woke to a very cold house. No one else was up, but the fire had burned down to cinders, and there wasn't any more coal in the house. I got up, slid on my pants and shoes. I went to the front door and saw the shotgun was still in the corner by the door, where Mama had left it the night before. I peeked out the living room window, 
everything that had happened the night before returning fresh to my memory. Unlocking the front door, I opened it and I looked outside. My mouth dropped open. The wheelbarrow filled with the coal I'd loaded the night before was now just sitting on the porch. Someone had taken the wheelbarrow to the house and up the five steps to the porch without anyone hearing it. One more thing. Sitting on top of the coal was an old kerosene lantern. I poked my head out into the brisk air. I thought it was cold in the house until that frosty October morning met my bare arms and face. I looked up and down the old road and around the house, no sign of anyone. I brought in a couple of pieces of coal and started up the fire. We never did find out who my mystery helper was. We found out later that day that Howard had been out of town at a doctor's office in Versailles, and Dad didn't come home until later that Saturday afternoon. Howard said it looked like one of the old lanterns in an old storage shed near the entrance of the mine. Dad, Howard, and I walked out the road the next day. I remember I had a hard time keeping up, it was so grown over. Howard toted an old black revolver, and Dad had Mom's shotgun. First, we went to the old shed. The door was bolted, and the padlock was rusted beyond opening. We then traipsed through the tall weeds and kudzu until dark, checking each of the old houses. But they were all still boarded up. There were no signs of entry, except for some broken-out windows that were probably from my rocks. From that day forward, I went out early to get the coal, with the exception of a few really cold nights. Those nights I did venture out after dark, I took my lantern. Terror in the Wild and Wonderful Mountains of West Virginia From Wayside Strangler 86 if anyone's ever seen the wild and wonderful whites of West Virginia before, it's the exact area where this event occurred. I literally had to drive by their house on the way. Hank Williams III also wrote a song about it, called Boone County Blues, which really captures the essence of the depressing, drug-consumed area. I worked as a lab technician for an independent company. I would run analyses on coal samples, to determine the quality. BTUs, ash, sulfur, things of that nature. Part of the job was driving company pickup trucks to various different coal mines, train loadouts, and the river docks to draft barges and collect samples. We got a call at around 2 a.m. to go pick up a train sample over in an incredibly remote area. The mine was miles away from absolutely anything. In order to get there, I had to drive across a place called Williams Mountain, home of Jesco and all the other whites. It's a notoriously steep, curvy, and dangerous mountain with a very high rate of accidents. I made it to the mine and collected the sample without incident. After about 15 minutes of driving, I started back up the steep mountain. Having made the trip numerous times, I could take the curves pretty fast especially when it's pitch dark and you can see headlights approaching you. The nearest stoplights, stop signs, or streetlights are a good 30 miles away, so it's a different kind of dark. 
The complete darkness just perfectly compounds the isolation. It was because I was driving so fast that I was completely caught by surprise when it appeared that there was a vehicle quickly catching up to me. I started to speed up, but before I knew it, they had caught up with me. When they got close, they turned on their high beams. I could tell it was a truck from the height of the lights, but the bright lights had me somewhat blinded. It was then when the terror really began. They started edging closer and closer until they were right up my rear. It didn't matter how fast I went, they stayed right on me. All of a sudden, they just stopped in the road and killed their headlights. Completely weirded out and rattled, I took a huge sigh of relief and began laughing nervously as they dropped from sight. Thinking it was just someone's idea of a cruel joke, Never had I been so ready to see that city skyline. Not too long after, and to my complete and utter horror, the lights began quickly climbing the mountain once again. Frantic, I punched the gas, almost wrecking twice trying to flee, but it was no use. Again, the bright lights filled up my mirrors, and simultaneously filled my heart with fear and absolute dread. They would back off some, then get extremely close repeating this over and over and over until they finally rammed me twice. The second time was hard enough to make me swerve, though thankfully I was able to ride it out. I should note there is absolutely nowhere to pull off while traversing the mountain, just guardrails on either side and drop-offs wherever the rails are missing. There's only one little church on a wide spot on the side of the road, so I tried to pull over and let them pass. I put on my signal and turned off, but my pursuers turned off as well and killed their lights. I hid my vehicle and ducked down, trying to watch out for any movement. Nothing. Two or three minutes probably goes by and I made my move, frantically peeling out. To my unimaginable relief, they did not pull out too, but I wasn't convinced it was over. Sure enough, the lights approached once more, though this time it was accompanied by a sound. An unmistakable, gut-wrenching sound of gunshots. I'd heard the term hyperventilate, but at that moment I discovered the full force of its meaning. Barely able to breathe, I ducked down as low as I could and began reciting a nonsensical plea for help. This was before cell phones were popular, but to this day, service there is non-existent. The bullets rang out like a soundtrack from my misery, and all I could think at that moment was that I never would see my loved ones again. Time is truly subjective. It felt as though I was on that mountain for days, but I finally reached the end. I eventually saw a few houses and immediately pulled into the first place I could. The truck didn't turn down the driveway, but lingered in the road with the headlights off. After a couple of minutes, a porch light came on and the truck did a donut, starting back up the mountain. A man emerged from the home, but I left as soon as the truck's lights were out of sight. I yelled, sorry, out the window and drove like a reckless lunatic the rest of the way. I ended up getting pulled over for speeding on the interstate. I didn't even attempt to explain as I figured it was a small price to pay, all things considered. 
Obviously, I never entertained the idea of ever making that run again, and my boss began collecting samples in the daytime only for that particular site. The mountains of West Virginia are incredibly beautiful, but there's also a lot of danger lurking in the depths of their remote isolation. Places that inspire movies like Wrong Turn. Places where no one can hear you scream. Giggles from Sidriax. I used to work for a motorcycle company in a very rural province of the Philippines. Unlike other places, my home island has only one city for now, and that's where our main office is located. My job at the time was as a field representative, but I mostly handled the collection of monthly payments from our customers. Most of our customers live in various secluded areas near the shorelines, mountains, and vast forests, hence why I was required to go collect their payments. More often than not, they supposedly forgot their monthly due dates, so it's up to me to remind them. I'm only a 5 foot 6 tall guy, but I'm not skinny, like my other co-workers. And before joining the company, I was an avid mountain biker and hiker because I was raised in a very far-off farm with no electricity or motorized transportation. Anyway, because of my nature, the office always puts me in charge of going to the most mountainous areas covered by woods. I didn't really complain at first. All these places that I had to go to were very secluded to the point that even electricity is non-existent, and people there live as if it's the Middle Ages. One of these days, I started off early, since I had to ride a motorcycle provided by the office as a means of transport. This motorcycle was clunky, old, and had had more repairs than a World War II war machine. But I trusted it enough that I called it Ox, because no matter how hard or impassable the terrain was, it had never let me down before. But I do have to repair Ox while on the way every now and then, but nothing major. As I reached the foot of the mountain, I prepared a bit by checking my gas, inspecting ox, and waterproofing my everyday carry stuffs. I never leave home without a knife, and on cases like these I always brought one of my large blades. I revved up ox and we started to tackle this steep dirt road used by large trucks heading up the mountain. My client for the day was a tribesman who worked in a mine and it always takes me two hours to get to the top of the mountain where his village is situated. The path there was very hard, and I was the only one who was able to get to the area. There were no houses along the way, just vast, deep woods all around. Usually, in places like these, I would hear the typical rainforest sounds every time, but that day was different. I stopped for a while and had my breakfast on the side of the road. Ox was parked on a grassy part, while my food and hot coffee were placed on top of the gas tank and seat. While I took a sip of my hot drink, I heard what seemed to be giggling sounds behind me. It was almost as if children were playing nearby. I looked around but saw nothing, so I ignored it, thinking it was a bird. When I bit into my food, I heard it again. Something felt off, because the surroundings fell silent and all I heard was the giggling getting closer from behind. I packed my stuff and unlocked the pin holding my knife. I know I sound like a coward, but I'd experienced the paranormal since childhood, 
and sometimes it can get physically dangerous. I relaxed a bit, trying to focus to where the sound was coming from. I thought about this giggling sound, and figured it could be two things. One, just a playful spirit teasing me. Two, it could be a bad one that follows you home so it can torment you for life. My grandparents told me that I needed to be respectful towards such beings, but I should never show weakness nor fear. I pulled out my 14-inch blade and took a stance as if I was ready to strike whatever would jump out of the woods. The ordeal lasted for about five minutes. It was quiet. I could hear my heartbeat and breathing. Then I spoke in a very serious tone, stating, Sorry if I disturbed you. I'm just resting, and I'll be on my way now. It was still silent, and after a few seconds, the normal forest sounds returned. The area felt somewhat the same again. I said thank you, and I went on my way. I made it to the small village, consisting of no more than 25 houses. I made it to my client, and he offered me coffee. I got his payment, which was three months due. While resting a bit, I recalled what happened. My client suddenly asked me if I encountered any other problems along the way. I said there was nothing else, but I asked why. He told me that one of the villagers died not too long ago. It was very sudden. One day that villager changed and acted odd, becoming paranoid for seemingly no reason, shouting in the middle of the night and running away to God knows where. He went missing for days and was found dead under a tree. The elder shaman said the poor man was haunted by an evil spirit, and it took his soul. The man was never a brave one to begin with, and was easily scared by anything. I thought about what my client said and bid him farewell. I rode down the mountain and passed the spot where I rested and had no other issues. I went home exhausted and dropped onto my bed. I remembered the events that happened and thought about what I encountered back there. Was it the same evil spirit? Did I have a standoff against it and prevail? I had no idea, but I knew for sure that with my line of work, it would not be the last time that I'd encounter such incidents. The Sasquatch Stalker From Crystal Holly 22 Location, North Carolina. This story happened when I was 12 or 13. I was getting off at my usual bus stop at about 4.30pm in the evening. From there, I had an 8-minute walk down a sort of long, cracked road. Where I lived was a new housing development, and because of this, on my left side of the road was pure swamp and dense woods, while on my right, there were a few houses here and there. As I was walking home, I felt this unease, as if I was being watched. Now, to be honest, I did get this feeling a lot when I was in or near the woods, so I blew off the feeling, chalking it up to me just being scared. At most, it was just some territorial forest animal watching me. As I continued, the feeling of being watched never left. I was about 70 yards from my home when I heard it, the sound of something walking in the woods. 
leaves and branches breaking underneath heavy feet. It sounded as if the creature was following me while using the forest as cover to not be seen. So I stopped in my tracks to see if I could see anything in the forest, to see what or who was walking around. But I saw nothing, nothing at all. I thought maybe it was all in my head, but as soon as I began walking again, that thing in the woods started to walk as well. So I stopped walking once more, and it stopped. Then I started walking again, and it started. This creature was following me and walking the same pace as me, stopping when I stopped and walking when I walked. I found this quite odd, but this seemed to be as if the creature was stalking me. It was watching me, but why? Was it making sure I didn't approach it or come anywhere close to it? Suddenly, I saw a small rock flying at me. Not sure what to do, I picked a small rock up and threw it back into the woods. I wanted to see how the creature would react. Would it run away or would it follow me still? But nothing happened. No sounds of running or walking occurred. Assuming the creature was still there, I hurried the rest of my way home into the backyard where my father was to tell him about my experience. After telling him and my younger brother about the experience, I also went to tell my younger neighbor about it. Together, we decided we'd go into the woods to see if we could find what we all now thought was a Bigfoot. My dad and I loved watching mountain monsters, so we decided we'd do what they did when hunting for a supposed Bigfoot. We grabbed a big stick and hit a tree with three large hits. Nothing at first, so my dad hit the tree three more times. That's when he yelled at us that he saw something behind a big fallen tree trunk. At first, we thought he was seeing things, until I saw a dark figure behind that trunk. It had thick, dark, brownish fur. The creature was huge, very huge, even though it was crouched. Wanting to catch its attention, I picked a thicker branch and slammed it into a tree three times. For a minute, it was quiet. Then my dad yelled to run. We listened and came bustling out of the forest to the neighbor's house. Safe and out of the woods, I asked my dad, why'd you tell us to run? He calmly tells me that when I wasn't paying attention, the creature behind the fallen trunk began to rise and stand up. My dad, not wanting to be there any longer, had us run. I don't know what would have happened if we stayed there longer. I love going in the woods, and I still do. But this encounter is one of the many encounters from the woods that is still burned into my memory. A reminder that the forest hides more than just coyotes and bears. It can hide much bigger and scarier creatures that you really don't want to ever encounter.